It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in 106.5 ELMNT-FM or 95.7 ELMNT-FM, and you can listen on your device of choice anywhere across the country, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. I'd like to welcome our first guest to the show today. It's a pleasure to have Mr. Howie Miller on the show and uh, also have him on the line joining us uh, during the midst of the pandemic that we find ourselves in. Uh, and if you don't know who Howie is, I'm going to tell you a little bit about him before uh, we get started talking to him. He is one of the funniest corporate and club comedians in North America. He is of First Nation descent of Cree Nation and born and raised in the Edmonton, Alberta area. He has a quick wit and a unique point of view on multi-ethnic and stereotypes and enjoyed by all audiences regardless of age, race, or sex and has garnered numerous television appearances and played uh, placed him in great demand on the corporate uh, comedy circuit. He has a hilarious routine mixed with stellar impressions and has the audience laughing from start to finish. And you can go online and see some of this if you don't believe me. He has some great stuff online that you can watch and you will see exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, he's been recently featured in uh, on American television, a Showtime special, No Reservations Needed. He's made numerous appearances on Canadian television, including CBC comedy specials, Winnipeg Comedy Fest- Festival, uh, Welcome to Turtle Island 1 and 2, CBC's Alberta's Comedy Spectacular, and his own half-hour comedy special, Comedy Now, presents Howie Miller. And he can also be heard on CBC's popular radio show, The Debaters, which I've caught him on there a couple of times. Howie, welcome to the show. Hi. Uh, it would uh, it, it sound like I I, uh, I wrote that myself. I didn't write that intro. I dictated it. So. <laughs> Just so you know. So are yeah, we in Ottawa or Toronto? We're in both. Oh, we're in both. Wow. <laughs> Well, so, in Ottawa, it's going to be a high of five today, probably a little rainy. Uh, mm-hmm. It's uh, plus two right now. Humidity's uh, 55%. Now, listen, I'm sorry, we're not hiring anyone doing the news or weather at this point in time, but uh, thanks for the... I do whatever about the radio, so <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> no worries. It's a chat radio show. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and it's a pleasure to have you on the show. I think we, we've wanted to have you on here for a while now. And, of course, uh, times have changed, haven't they? Uh, you know, for someone like yourself in that is out there doing live uh, shows, especially when you're doing stand-up comedy uh, and always in front of an audience, um, things have changed a little bit. They have changed, and uh, it's, it's interesting. I'm always up for challenges in my life. I, I'm always, I've always been one to, to, to solve puzzles and whatnot. It's, it's the way my mind works. So... With this uh, introduced isolation and quarantine idea, uh, stand-up comedians are are notably like they're like, oh my god, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Um, and some of us have have done live uh, comedy shows. To it's really weird doing a live uh, stream of comedy with no mm-hmm. laughter, mm-hmm. just telling your jokes. But uh, like I said, when I did it, I was like, you know, I've been in a room of seven people. And they were all drunk, and no one laughed. So <laughs> this is nothing new to me, really. Um, but so you but, you have to roll with it, and uh, it's a challenge. And uh, there's new avenues, I guess, that this presents. 
Mm. So you just have to find them. I guess one of those avenues might be for uh, comedians like yourself to uh, start thinking about what new material you might uh, come out of this with. For instance, as I was just waiting for you here, I I wrote down, uh, you know, what is the life of a self-isolated comedian like, you know, someone that always needs to have an audience to play off of, because I think in many ways the audience uh, gives you that reaction to know if something is working or not. Definitely. The instant gratification tells us whether or not a joke works or not. It's really hard. I find anyways, personally, uh, I was never one to sit there and, and open a notepad and write a joke down going, yeah, that's, that's good. That's mm. good. You can't, you mm. can do that, but you have to ultimately need an audience to, to, uh, to give you the, uh, the cue to, to tell you whether or not it's funny or not. If they're laughing, okay, that's good. And I can work on this, uh, or no one laughed. Well, I'll, totally garbage that idea or keep parts of it so yes we need a live audience um uh, so listen you've been doing this uh, for over 10 years uh, we were of course talking about uh, the audience interaction and those kind of things um and and i've noticed obviously from some of the things i've seen online that you do uh, audiences change from place to place as well so how how um uh, how important is it for an, a comedian to have a sense, or is there any point in having a sense of, you know, the the room you're going into ahead of time, what audiences might have been like there, or, or do you, is it every is every audience different, no matter where you are, uh, no matter what day or time, or or you know, uh, if you're doing two shows in a day at the same place, audiences can be completely different. Uh, I always assume that audiences are completely different. Every single one is is different. There now over the years. Now it's actually over twenty years I've been doing this, mm-hmm. and over the years there are similar audiences, mm-hmm. like like a Friday night. Um, like if there's uh, if you're at Yuck Yucks and there's two shows Friday night, then generally the late show is going to be a little rowdier. Mm-hmm. You can you can gauge that, but it's never really a hundred percent the same. It's very similar. Um, right. But as for personal, for me anyways, personally, I always view each and every audience as a, di- a brand new, different audience. Um, and, you know, doing this for over 20 years, you learn tricks to the trade of how to, to gauge an audience as soon as you, you get up there. Within the first five seconds of hello, how are you type thing, you have to be able to find the pockets. Okay, there's a pocket of old people over here, and these people over here are young, and those people over there are drunk, and you, you really have to hone your skills to be able to figure out where everyone is in the room and play to them accordingly with your material. So mm. the bigger bag of jokes you have, the more you can play with them and the, mm. the more they they seem satisfied. Now, you just mentioned, you know, uh, picking out people in the audience. If there's a particular, uh, you just mentioned, you know, perhaps a, a rowdy group that have been drinking a little too much and they're, uh, you know, heckling you and those kind of things. Uh, I've always heard that, that you don't, you don't want to encourage them. Uh, so do you look for someone in the audience that looks engaged and, and play to that person or those group of people more than the rowdies? Or how do you deal with them? The rowdies, I never really have a problem with um, hecklers yelling uh, negative things at me because mm. generally I'm, I'm pretty self-deprecating off the top of my routine <laughs> anyway, so there's nothing left for them to say. Uh, rowdies, usually they're just being loud and they're either trying to finish the joke or they comment in a positive way on the joke. Like, yeah, that happened to me or something, mm. you know. Mm. It's like they don't realize that they're in a room full of other people, that thing. Right. They've, they've had a little too much right. and I try to 
kind of be a little louder and kind of bow over that and regain the focus. And yes, definitely talk to the people that are engaged and more focused on me. Because mm-hmm. uh, once you engage them, then you're talking to them and then you might have a back and forth and then that might lead to, you know, you have to try and shut them up. So you have to be, you know, quick in your wits and usually the insults start coming and mm-hmm. um, you, you're trying to win. Mm-hmm. And that really disrupts the whole flow of, of an act because it's right. like, well, that's not what I planned. Here's yep. my, the route of my highway went this way. Now I'm off on some dirt road somewhere that I don't know where it's going to go. Mm. Right. Uh, you just mentioned uh, self-deprecating off the top of your show that you usually do come out and say something. Uh, and and it is funny. You do make uh, use of the stereotypes. Uh, but have you had any backlash from other uh, Native people about that kind of thing? Um, not necessarily a backlash where anybody has come up really and said anything to me personally and said how you shouldn't do those jokes Mm. it's more of a conversation with my immediate family Mm. that were were like my 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 sons are very um uh uh they're they're trying to regain their their traditional roots back Mm. uh Mm. and it's something that's gone over me i'm adopted i was part of the 60s scoop so i i never learned my language and uh I, I never uh, was with, I never was raised on a, a reservation, but my, my sons are really, are really uh, interested in the traditional history of our people and learning Cree and, and, and stuff like that. So I really respect that. So over the years, my act has definitely changed as my, as my sons have gotten older mm. to say, look, is, is this too, am I, have I gone too far with this? And should mm. I pull this back? And mm. it's really helped me hone my skills to be more, um, aware of things. Mm. And it, of course, in this day and age of, of being more politically correct, uh, you mm. really have to roll with that as well. So uh, my sons have really helped me, sort of, I guess, clean my act up, <laughs> but also given me insight as a direction of where I want to go with the furthering of using humor to educate people that may be ignorant to things. Yeah, interesting. I'm glad you said that. I was wondering about the, you know, comedy and the use of education. I guess obviously you can't hit people over the head with it, but there is an opportunity there. Um, now, the other thing I really liked what you said was is that your your sons are helping you, uh, uh, you know, I, I guess in some ways uh, educate yourself and and learn things and be more more aware of the, as you say, their traditional values that they're trying to find. Um, interesting. You said you were adopted and and you were you know so you never learned the language. You're not alone there, of course. A lot of us never had that opportunity to do that either. Um, but when you first started out in comedy, uh, one, what drew you, what drew you to comedy? Uh, I know everyone says uh, I was the class clown and uh, I always loved making jokes. Uh, for me, it was just a way to <clears throat> I saw a way to earn money. Um, quickly Hmm. and I didn't have to go to a regular job because I'm quite lazy so uh, I got to uh, sleep in and then go to work (laughs) in the evenings and uh, I took advantage at the time uh, when I started out I think in 1997 there were only a handful of indigenous comedians across the country and Hmm. there was none in Edmonton so when I went to Yuck Yucks Amateur Nights they saw an opportunity to literally cash in on, Hey, we have an indigenous guy now. Mm. And I took the the opportunity to say, look, I know I'm indigenous, but I'd rather be just a comedian. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. And then later on, I figured out what's more marketable if I say I'm a you know a yep. native comedian. So sure. <clears throat> that's how I got my ball rolling. And I actually, I uh, I rolled really quick. Like I, I rose up through the ranks pretty quick because uh, the company really wanted to push push that. So I would learn more. I was getting more opportunities to go on the road. And when you start out, you're not making any money. Mm. Um, and I realized that if I write my act clean, then I can do corporate comedy for companies. And that pays way more. And I had a young family at the time to deal with. So that really helped out. And uh, I guess that's, that's, that's how we started. Cool. I appreciate you sharing that. I just want to jump in and let everyone know that you're listening to Element FM. This is Moment of Truth, and we are broadcasting out of Toronto and uh, Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in 106.5 ELMNTFM or 95.7 ELMNTFM and listen on your device of choice, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Our guest is Howie Miller. He is a very funny man. You can go online and uh, find out some of the videos that are out there uh, from him that he that are posted of some of his stand-up comedy work. Uh, I want to tell you a little bit more about him. In 2010, he joined the Pow Wow Comedy Jam, and since then, they've received acclaims from all over the U.S., earning Entertainer of the Year honors in 2011 by the National Indian Gaming Association Comedic Performance of the Year, and at the National Indigenous Awards in New Mexico in 2012. Uh, He is an accomplished comedic actor, writer, and has been nominated for a Gemini Award, a Canadian Comedy Award, and Canadian Screen Award for his writing and acting and the sketch comedy show Caution May Contain Nuts. Uh, People may have seen that on uh, APTN. Uh, Howie, uh, writing. Um, you, you know, you were just talking about how you got started because you saw an opportunity to make some money uh, in, instead of just going to a regular job, which is an interesting approach. Um, but when did you know you were funny? Um, very early on. Um, I, I, and generally speaking, um, probably over 90% of the comedians that I know are all the, or, and, and actors, performers, are all the youngest children in a family. And uh, it holds true with me because you're, mm. you're vying for attention mm. at a very early age. Mm. And I found out by doing pratfalls and then learning how to break dance and then learning how to ride my BMX and do tricks on that, I was getting attention. <laughs> and that's, that's what people crave. We crave attention. Mm. Um, back before YouTube and, and TikTok and everything was invented, we had to do it live. Uh, so right. <laughs> you, the more people gathered around you doing something, uh, that was the more attention you got. So, um, I, uh, I learned very early on that uh, I could do things to get people to be performing or singing or pretending to be Elvis Presley at a very early age mm. that people enjoyed that. And that sense of, okay, like this, that that's where the brain started to change. Okay. How do I continue this? How can I maintain this momentum? What can I do to uh, further this? And how do I get more of it? Mm. It's interesting how the brain works when it when it's very malleable at an early age. Of okay, I need to figure out what's the recipe behind this. Mm-hmm. 
Um, certainly uh, from the stuff that I've seen, and it would be great to uh, see you uh, do a, a live act sometime. Uh, and before I go any further, I want to mention that uh, is something else that you, you have been involved with that came out of the Winnipeg Comedy Festival, I guess, in uh, uh, 2019, uh, was a new uh, compilation album with some other uh, uh, Indigenous comedians, uh, Treaty One and Only. Yes, yes. Uh, the opportunities that, uh, first of all, the Winnipeg Comedy Festival is the best comedy festival I've ever been a part of, and I've I've been to all. I've been to Just for Laughs. I've been to the Halifax Comedy Festival. I've done some in the states, uh, some other ones in in Canada, some smaller ones. Winnipeg is 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 perfectly run. It's run by comedians, uh, so they know how to treat you. Mm. Um, and the the performance, the the way they package their shows is perfectly, and they've given so much opportunity for Indigenous people, Indigenous comedians, younger comedians coming up through the ranks, and it's just given me a giant door to walk through and hold open for anybody who's coming up, wow. um, because that's that's where that's where the future of Indigenous comedians and performers is. The older people have to hold open the door and say, "Let's look, guys. The door's open over here. Come this way. Come this way." <laughs> you know, type <laughs> thing. So Winnipeg has been great at that, and they uh, actually were the first um, when I first did uh, "Welcome to Turtle Island" I, I, 2004 or 2007, I think, years ago. Mm. That was the first in uh, 100% Indigenous stand-up comedy uh, televised show in history. Mm. And then uh, Showtime did one the following year that I was part of down in LA. But uh, yeah, that Winnipeg is, they really broke ground and uh, I'm so proud and honored to be a part of that. And when they asked me to come back and do the treaty one and only, I was like, well, of course, obviously <laughs> whatever you need me to do, uh, as long as you know I'm performing stand up with other fine indigenous comedians and mm. I'm there. Right. Um, now, the other thing, of course, that uh, should be mentioned about it is I love the uh, graphics, the the, the, uh, the the drawing that was used. It's it's of course somewhat grotesque looking, you might say, but it's also very cool. Uh, it's drawn in, and I'm sure it's the the four of you that are. Well, there's actually more than four of you participating, I think. And uh, but there's images of four faces with the lips very accented, all coming out, uh, you know, exploding from the middle, going out uh, in all directions. But it's uh, it's great because it, it, it there's a real indigenous feel to it, especially with the accent of the lips, which, of course, we all know about that. Oh, definitely, definitely. Uh, the, uh, Jackie Travers uh, is a painter and uh, activist in Winnipeg, and she painted that. Mm. And... Um, yeah, I guess some people have commented that it's one of the album covers, but it uh, it definitely has an indigenous feel to it. Because yes, mm-hmm. there's more than four of us, but it just to make it to make the soul correct, because you know, in indigenous thing, they're in a circle, a wheel. Yeah. Um, yeah, it does. It looks so cool. Um, now we we talked a little bit about this off the top of the show. It, you know. Um, one of the things I, I am very impressed with that you do is your impressions. I mean, Arnie, you do a great Arnie. Uh, Christopher Walken, that was, that's a great Christopher Walken that you do. And, uh, and of course, Stallone, you do, you do all these guys. Uh, I'm sure that, that you do others, but these are the three. Um, and and um, 
you know, it, it's wonderful to see. And I think you use those in a couple of situations. I think there was a, a drive-through situation uh, that you used um, Stallone for, perhaps, or Arnie. Um, but I think the uh, you were telling a joke uh, at a party or something. You were using uh, Christopher Walken as, as the person telling the joke. Um, you know, it's always, uh, yeah, to, to get in an impression, um, mm. to just do it is you have to find out, okay, well, what situation am I in? What, mm. what are we going to do? So, uh, yeah, I use all of them for any situation. Like, uh, one of the videos I posted, um, I think it's on my Facebook, uh, <clears throat> uh it was an impression a day, a challenge. So one of the videos I posted was Schwarzenegger talking about, oh, well, actually all the videos I was doing were, were uh, the impressions I were doing were about, you know, stay home and stay safe. Mm. So this, that, the other thing, if you're there in your house, you stay there and stay indoors and be safe and, you know, cover your face up and, and take care of yourself and do this, not just for you, but for all the people out there that are older and maybe have, uh, you know, some sort of something wrong with them that make them susceptible to pandemic. Uh, it's, you know, if you do that, you'd be a fantastic person and everything you do would be fantastic. <laughs> so you, you just have to figure out something to say for them. Right. And then once you've been doing them for years, you know, you just go in and out. It's crazy. Weird. <laughs> this pandemic. It's out there. <laughs> you know, so you just, you have to find something to say. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, when you were young, uh, you know, obviously with picking up on, on doing, uh, other people's voices and things, who, who did you, who did you look to when you were younger? Who, who were the comedians that you looked up to? Oh, geez. Let me see. Uh, William Shakespeare. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Cause that's how old I am. <laughs> I'm ridiculously old. Uh, when I was growing up, um, I almost thought you said William Shatner there for a second. <laughs> no, my God, no, he's Canadian. I, I looked up to, um, uh, Robin Williams a lot. Robin yeah. Williams, yeah. Um, Steve Martin, and anybody who did uh, impressions. So when mm. I was growing up, I think the very first impressionist I saw was probably Rich Little. And mm. you know, later on, I found out he was Canadian. I was like, oh my god, that's awesome. And then Andre Philippe Gagnon, mm. another uh, fine Canadian impressionist right. who I'm going to actually be working with. In, cool. in the, well, okay, we'll see. It was supposed to be this mm. year, so <laughs> it's probably going to be next year. But um, another fine impressionist that I just love watching people being able to take on a voice and and be wowed at the wow that all those voices are coming out of that one person mm. so uh, well, very young why do you think that is so uh we're so impressed by something like that I, well it's i think it's entertainment it's mm. it's entertainment and it's it's uh, if you keep it short enough, it's just like watching anything like watching uh, you know memes or like watching a meme or mm. Or watching Fail Army, something to keep your attention for 15 seconds right. of, of somebody being entertaining. And uh, there's something very satisfying. If you do it right, then people are like, oh, that was perfect. Right. Uh, now, you mentioned that you were going to be doing some things. So what is the, what is the horizon looking like now that things are on hold, you know, and, and there is no gatherings at this point in time? Uh, what, what, does, what does it look like for you? What, what kind of things are you talking about, thinking about, um, possibly working on uh, now that you have the time? Um, there's two things that I want to be working on. There's a YouTube web series that I'm trying to put together, uh, which would involve 
lots of web cameras and one actor because of social distancing. Mm. Um, and also I'm still working on, I was working on uh, a television package pre-production development deal with some people uh, south of the border that have ties to Comedy Central that I was really worried was going to go away. But just in the last couple of weeks, there's been lots of meetings. And like I said, I did a Zoom meeting with these people and they were like, no, we're still going. We're still moving forward. And we want to hmm. we want to be first out of the gates when everything's allowed to go back to normal. So I'm like, well, okay then. So I have more uh, television writing coming up and, and hopefully some more uh, acting gigs that I when I write television shows I I'm I'm not stupid I write myself into everything so, mm-hmm. <laughs> so I make myself work <laughs> yeah that's nothing wrong with that um, is it always uh, have you have you thought of venturing outside of comedy have you done anything outside of the comedy realm in terms of acting or performing uh, definitely um, I think uh, comedians make great dramatic uh, actors because we have so much um, up and down inside of us already emotionally mm-hmm. because to go out to an audience to make people all laugh, there's a certain natural high you have to have. Well, to have that natural high uh, in your life, there also has to be a balance of a natural low and you have to learn how to balance those two out. Um, so uh, when it comes to do dramatic work, it's something that's always interesting me. I've done a couple things, uh, some film shorts. Uh, there's one called the, um, zombies and Indians. Oh yeah. And, uh, it was a film short. We shut down in Calgary that they're actually going to, they're going to be releasing soon. I think on Facebook just because they were going to release it somewhere else, but now it's like pandemic. No one can go watch it. So we're going to do a live thing on Facebook at some point. Mm. Um, but it, uh, more dramatic stuff is always interesting because again, it's a challenge. It's a puzzle. Like really, I, I, I really want to get into this because it's, it's more meat. It's more, it's more something to be found. And, uh, uh, it's 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 fun, you know. It's fun to work like that. So I'm um, right. looking forward to doing more of that. You know, I think you're right. I think that uh, comedians do make great dramatic uh, actors, and we, have, of course, we've seen that in the past. I think that that when we first see a comedian taking on their first dramatic role, uh, it's always how is this gonna how is this gonna look? How is this gonna work? But generally, um, I think we're all very pleasantly surprised when we see them and and what they can bring to a, to a role in that in that regard. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, we're almost out of time, uh, Howie, but it's been such a pleasure speaking with you and, and finally be able to get you on the show. Hey, you know what? The pleasure is all on this side, man. It's all over here. <laughs> well, you know, we wish you all the best in the future with everything you're going to do. and We look forward to uh, all the uh, all the things that you can bring us, uh, make us laugh in the future, because uh, you certainly have done so in the past uh, with your live shows. Even watching you online, I'm I've, I'm rolling over uh, watching this stuff. So uh, thank you so much, Chimigwech and, and Yawa, for, for your talents that you bring to us and share with us. Thank you very much. All right, you take care, and uh, hopefully we'll have you back on. Sounds good. All right, take care. That, of course, is Howie Miller. He is one of the funniest corporate and club comedians in North America. He's of First Nation descent and uh, born and raised in around the Edmonton area. And uh, he's got a new album out with a number of other uh, Indigenous comedians. It's called Treaty One and Only. Uh, and you can uh, look around to find out where you can pick that up. It was recorded at the Winnipeg Comedy Festival last year, 2019. 
That's this part of the show. Please don't go away because we will be right back here on Moment of Truth with more right after this. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa and anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in 106.5 ELMNTFM or 95.7 ELMNTFM. And you can be listening uh, anywhere across the country, seven days a week, 24 hours a day uh, on the device of your choice. It is our pleasure to welcome our next guest to the show. Uh, someone who is not a stranger to media, someone who's been around uh, in many uh, different ways involved with the media for quite some time, and it's a pleasure to have him on. We've been wanting to have him on for a while. Bob Gishik Rice is with us, and he's an author, he's a journalist, uh, originally from Wasasing First Nation. And, uh, Bob, welcome to the show. Yeah, David, thanks a lot for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah, so are are you in uh, Sudbury these days? Whereabouts are you located? Yeah, based in Sudbury. Moved here almost three years ago. Uh, planted some roots, bought a house. Uh, Going to be here for good, I think. <laughs> Speaking of which, I think I saw a post of yours looking out your window the other day with some snow or something like that. It wasn't. It was that recently? Oh yeah, and today we got even more. Uh, oh. I posted another picture from this morning. We got, I think, close to ten centimeters overnight. So it's, wow. it is a very bizarre scene here in Sudbury today, for sure. Wow. So listen, um, you know, we are, we are all, including yourself, dealing with uh, the COVID situation and uh, isolating and working from home and those kind of things. Uh, you also, of course, host an afternoon show in Sudbury with CBC. Um, and uh, how how do you guys how are you guys dealing with that situation there? Well, it's been um, an adjustment for sure. Uh, for I think the last month and a half, at least, most staff at the CBC Sudbury uh, newsroom have been working from home and up north the show I work on is shared by both uh, CBC Sudbury and CBC Thunder Bay Mm. and also in Thunder Bay most of the staff there is working from home but for the afternoon show we have to broadcast from the studio obviously right so myself and the producer and newsreader work from home in the morning then we go in during the afternoon uh, which is kind of weird for sure like it, it sort of changes up the workflow a bit, right? We mm-hmm. are sort of backloaded with, uh, you know, recordings and other chasing and producing that we have to do. So it's been a bit of an adjustment. Uh, but at the same time, there's really just one topic nowadays, right? So mm-hmm. um, it's a matter of finding how everybody else is adjusting to the pandemic and just connecting with as many people across Northern Ontario as we can to sort of reflect that. Uh, so it's been, you know, kind of like Groundhog Day a little bit, as I'm sure you, you all uh, are experiencing there. But at the same time, it's a cool opportunity to see how people are sort of responding to this crisis. And in other ways, like building community, too. Eh? Like that's been really sort of encouraging and really heartwarming to see as well. So, yeah, it's been uh, we will never forget this time. That's for sure. Yeah, you got that right. Yeah, of course, though, you have some other, uh, I wouldn't call them necessarily distractions, I would say, uh, other things that you're involved with, such as writing. And one of those things, I guess, that's been keeping you writing, uh, busy a, a little bit lately is the uh, Moon of the Crushed Snow. You, I've been seeing a lot of reviews. I, I know you've been getting some attention from that. came out uh, in late October of 2018. Uh, but um, you, you recently, I believe, won the Evergreen Award for... Uh, uh, for over 100 libraries uh, for public reading, for, for uh, audiences uh, endorsing this book. 
Yeah, it's it's been um, a very, um, very sort of fulfilling journey, I guess, to have this book out there. Um, you know, it's been almost two years since it's been out, and I really wasn't expecting this big of a response to it. Mm. Uh, so um, I'm very honored and very humbled by the attention the story is getting. And, uh, you know, when I was sort of dreaming it up, it was more or less a creative project for me to sort of explore some ways to have, I guess, fun. It's sort of weird to describe a post-apocalyptic book as fun but um <laughs> yeah it was a, a really exciting way for me to sort of get a story together and get a story out there so and as a result it sort of changed the course of my career you know the interest in it has resulted in in sort of um another publishing deal and some other opportunities too so i've recently announced that i'm leaving my job at cbc as host of up north to do some full-time writing and also to explore some other opportunities as well so i did not foresee this happening when i set out on trying to write that story and get it published but here we are and um the timing is is very bizarre but it's um you know very exciting at the same time too yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. I was going to ask you about the uh, the the, uh, the fact that you did announce just recently you're going to leave the, uh, the CBC and move on to other things, and uh, now you've given us some answer to that. Uh, I, I guess in some ways this book being post as you see post apocalyptic as well as um, it being an isolated community is it's somewhat resonating with people uh, now. Even though the attention started to be garnered towards this before this happened, but it's it's interesting. Interesting. Yeah, it is really interesting. And um, like, it's great. Again, it's an honor to have this interest and to have people reading my book and to be considering it as, you know, um, a part of all these discussions that we're having right now. Mm -hmm. uh, at the same time, it's kind of weird, you know, it's not like um, I'm jumping for joy over book sales because of a widespread crisis <laughs> that everybody in the world experiencing right uh but at the same time I'm, i appreciate that people are it's resonating with people they're finding sort of things that they can relate with in it and i mean it's not totally parallel to what we're experiencing now no. there are a few things uh similar uh between the book and our current experience and i think those would be um you know access to food and panic buying and I guess the mystery of, of what's happening, like people are really unsure and uncertain of what's going to happen as mm -hmm. a result of, you know, this widespread catastrophe. Eh? Mm -hmm. um, so at the same time, though, it's, it's cool to have these discussions and to be included in, in some of the wider, um, I guess, movement of sort of post-apocalyptic fiction and dystopian fiction and to have, you know, my book included in some of those lists and, and you know, like books that I grew up really enjoying and, and really that inspired me to write a story like this at the same time. So, yeah, it's, it's an interesting sort of uh, development and one, again, as I mentioned, I didn't foresee at all. Now, when you first got uh, interested in journalism, I'm, I'm just wondering, you started around 1996, and I think, uh, if, as I understand it, um, you were, were an exchange student in Germany and you wrote an article about being Anishinaabe in Canada? Yeah, that's sort of where my journalism uh, journey began. And uh, I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do in terms of post-secondary education or a career at that point. I was in grade 12 and 
back then, way, way uh, in yonder years, uh, in Ontario, we had OAC, right, which mm. they used to call grade 13. And, you know, that was the year if you wanted to go to university, you know, you had to take those OAC courses. Uh, so I had my grade 12 year almost done and I had OAC ahead of me and I wasn't sure what, you know, I wanted in terms of a plan. And I wasn't really being encouraged in any sort of direction by any teachers or any guidance counselors or anything like that. So uh, I, I learned of this exchange program um, through Rotary, the Rotary Club. Oh, yeah. And they, you know, what they do is they send, they pick a student from, you know, an area and they send them off to do an exchange program in, in a foreign country. And uh, I told my parents about it and they were really supportive. They thought I should apply and we did and eventually was chosen to go to Northern Germany for a year. So uh, about a month before I left, I was contacted by uh, the Nishnabek News. Uh, the editor there was Dave Dale, who's based in North Bay. Mm. And uh, he said, you know, we heard you're going to Germany for a year. And, you know, we haven't heard about any of our Nishnabek kids from any of our uh, communities in this area really doing anything like this before. So mm. would you like to write about it for us and uh, just sort of uh, report back on what it's like being Nishnabek in Germany? And I said, yeah, that sounds like a really cool opportunity and um, basically signed me up and because I'd really sort of taken a shine to creative writing and to to reading and, and so on at that point. And, and then he said, every time we publish one of your essays, your personal essays, we'll pay you a hundred bucks. And uh, that was like a, a big revelation <laughs> for me because I didn't realize that you could actually get paid to, <laughs> to write anything, you know? Right. And, and that's because I wasn't familiar with um, Indigenous journalists who were out mm. there at the time doing, you mm. know, really important work. So I didn't know that you could be a journalist as an Indigenous person, right? Mm. So mm -hmm. that's how that all started. And, you know, I started writing these sort of... Uh, um yeah these personal accounts of what it was like being being indigenous uh, as an exchange student in germany and i faxed them back to canada because this is these are the days before widespread email access right so mm. uh that's sort of how it started and the feedback i got was really good and when i got back to canada uh went back to paris on high school to do my oec year i decided i wanted to apply to journalism school after that and sort of the rest is history so what part of germany were you in I was in a little town called Bracca, and mm. that's about a half hour north or so of Bremen. Um, and it's in uh, an area called uh, Lower Saxony, Niedersachsen. Mm. Uh, so it's not too far from Hamburg either, and not too far from the North Sea coast. Um, so it's pretty much the, the northern lowlands of Germany. You know, Wab, when you say you, you were in Germany, uh, I had a big smile on my face because, as we know now, uh, and I'm not sure how long this has been going on in Germany, and maybe you saw this while you were there, Germany is fascinated with First Nation yeah. culture. <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, I was aware of that when I went. Um, uh, you know, people had told me uh, before I left, you know what they do over there is they have, like, <laughs> simulated powwows, and yeah. people actually dress up in regalia, and they have drum groups, and... Mm. You know, uh, it happens in countries like Germany, Austria, the Czech Republic. And I was like, wow, that's, that's weird. <laughs> you know, that was my first thought. <laughs> and when I got there, uh, people told me about these, you know, pseudo powwows that were happening. And I really wanted to see it. You know, I was really intrigued by that just to, because I grew up going to powwows, right? Mm, and dancing mm. and drumming. 
but nobody ever took me. And mm. I think either they were embarrassed or they were worried <laughs> that I'd be offended. But right. I really wanted to see it just for the spectacle. But unfortunately, it never happened. Yeah, that would have been a good article to write. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, I've heard of some wild things. I've heard, uh, you know, the, I've heard about Mohawk languages being taught over there. I've heard about villages being set up, uh, you know, that mm-hmm. these people live in traditional ways. And I'm going like, wow, this is this is radical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, and Drew Hayden Taylor hosted a documentary recently yes. that I think came out within the last couple of years. Yeah. That was really, really well done. It's sort yeah. of, uh, you know, turn things around too to introduce us to the actual Indigenous people from North America who mm. go over there and, and teach them about yeah. the actual ways, which is really important at the same time, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, listen, you said you weren't expecting this uh, from uh, the, the book, uh, the attention you're getting, the kind of, uh, you know, how this is rolled out. Um, but, uh, no, I've lost where I was going with that. So let me let me just move on. <laughs> um, I guess uh, the fact that you are leaving CBC, you've take, made this decision and, and these things have, have uh, happened that are allowing you to move forward. Um, I, I would like to know uh, a couple of things. One is, uh, was your interest in journalism, was that first or was your interest in writing? Or did they both kind of happen, you know, sort of at the same time? How, how did that all roll out? Oh, that's a good question. It was my interest in, in fiction and writing that developed mm. first. And mm. that was, I think, because I was fortunate to grow up with a really strong connection to Nishnabit storytelling. Mm. Uh, I grew up in the 80s at a time when my community of Wasoxing was really reconnecting with the tradition and custom and culture. Uh, people had made a concerted effort to overcome colonialism and brutal efforts like residential schools, day schools, the Indian Act, and so on. So I, I grew up at a time of renaissance, essentially, and feel very, very fortunate that that was my upbringing back in the 1980s. And a big part of that was storytelling. Uh, in school, we had elders come and share stories with us. And that was part of, of our learning on a pretty regular basis. So I guess that was sort of uh, imprinted on me very early and, and by the time I got to high school you know I became a little more intrigued by by books you know even though we did learn uh, about language arts in the school on the res uh, it took a sort of a different turn by the time I got to high school and you know there was sort of more of a focus on the literary arts and that method of, of expressing yourself right so I just really enjoyed it you know I, it was a creative outlet for me to, to write like that and to read I uh, became an avid reader and um, just sort of to pass the time when I was at home on the res, I would write short stories just, just for fun, right? Mm. All the while, never knowing that there were actual Indigenous authors uh, <laughs> out there at the time doing this groundbreaking work. As I said, you know, similar to Indigenous journalists, I just wasn't <laughs> exposed to them because, you know, when it came to the Indigenous authors, they just weren't in the curriculum mm-hmm. of uh, Ontario High School, you know, back in the 1990s then. Um, yeah. So that was always a, an important sort of outlet for me. And I, I, from grade nine on, I just really enjoyed writing. And things really took a turn for me, I think, when I was in about grade 10 or grade 11, when one of my aunts uh, asked me what my favorite class was. And I told her it was English class. And she asked me, you know, who were we reading? And I said, you know, like Shakespeare and J.D. Salinger and W.O. Mm-hmm. Mitchell, Farley Moat, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. And, and she sort of took it upon herself to start introducing 
me to indigenous authors at the time who were doing really important work, like mm. Richard Wagamese and mm. Lee Miracle, uh, Richard Van Camp, Drew Hayden Taylor, mm. uh, Louise Erdrich, and so on, right? Mm. And that opened my eyes to the possibility of sort of having our experiences documented in literary form. And in some ways, in, in a weird way, it was almost like validation, right? Because by the time you get into the mainstream education system that's based on sort of Western ideals, mm. the book is upheld as the ultimate expression of storytelling, you know? Mm. And I didn't see any Indigenous stories in the books that they gave us in high school. So I just thought, you know, being oppressed that our stories weren't valid in that sense. And our books didn't, our stories didn't belong in books. But, you know, that sort of changed my life and it inspired me to sort of keep writing creatively. But then, you know, I had this experience in Germany that sort of put me on the path to journalism, which seemed like a more feasible career path at that point. You know, it seemed like there were more employment opportunities and that was sort of a more viable career. Um, so that's sort of why I focused on journalism at that point. And then I think by the time my career became established, I went back and explored some of those stories, uh, explored publishing some of those stories that I originally wrote when I was in high school. And, and that's sort of where the, the literary journey began too. And now it's become the focus. just want to jump in and let everyone know that you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. And if you download the Radio Player Canada app, you can listen anywhere across the country, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. Uh, if you uh, if you download that on the Radio Player app and on your device of choice, listen anytime, anywhere. Um, Wob, as you're getting close to leaving CBC, um, how do you feel about that? Uh, I mean, CBC is not a bad gig, right? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's a big leap for sure. I'm I'm jumping off the mothership, as they say. Mm. Uh, yeah, it, it was a big decision to make, and I didn't make it lightly, of course. Mm. You know, I've been at CBC for 14 years now, mm-hmm. uh, with since in Winnipeg, Toronto, and Ottawa, and it has been a hugely fulfilling career. I've mm-hmm. grown as a person and as a storyteller and as a journalist, and, you know, I, I, I'm extremely thankful for all of the experiences I've had and all the mentorship I've had at CBC and, mm. and, and all the people who have really ensured that I could become the best journalist I could, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And it really, I think, bolstered my literary career, too, because of the people that I've met interviewing mm-hmm. over the years and mm-hmm. the human experiences I've learned and sort of the responses that I've seen the humans have to different kinds of situations, right? Um, that has set me up, I think, to be a better writer. Um, so, you know, if 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 these opportunities hadn't come up now, I, I definitely would have stayed at CBC a little bit longer. I definitely would have stayed in the host chair of Up North for at least a few more years because it is the best job I've had and it is the highlight of my journalism career. Um, it's just a remarkable opportunity day in and day out to connect with a region that you know I have roots in and I firmly believe in and mostly because of the Indigenous presence in Northern mm. Ontario, right? Mm. And, you know, the phenomenal things that Indigenous communities are doing here. It's just been an honor to reflect that as much as I can on a daily basis. And um, yeah, walking away from it is is, is sad, absolutely. Um, but at the same time, I'm really excited for the opportunities I have going ahead. And I definitely don't want to close the door on CBC. Mm. I, I would like to continue working with CBC on other projects in the future, but I don't foresee myself ever returning 
in a full-time sort of daily capacity. Mm. Um, but I am extremely thankful to everyone at CBC from, from the leadership to my colleagues at the newsroom level who've just made it a wonderful 14 years. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, uh, you probably are going to be in, in, in a fairly decent uh, spot considering you've been there for 14 years, as you say, and, and have got that uh, reputation with them and have got that, that experience behind you that they probably will be happy to, to keep the door open for you in, in different ways that you uh, can can collaborate and work with them in the future. Um, you know, just before we, we did the introduction to the station once again, um you know, you talked about how there weren't many uh, Indigenous writers. You, you didn't know of any at that time uh, as you started out, but it was nice to see, you know, this, this person is introducing you. And, and it's nice also to see that that has changed now. Oh, yeah, it's changed big time, especially in the last, like, three, four years. Mm-hmm. You, know? um, you look at almost any bestseller list, and there's usually some Indigenous presence there, right? Um, mm-hmm. At least one book, and on some uh, on other lists, you know, three, four, five books. Right. And it's, it's in a variety of, of literary genres, too. I think the strongest mm-hmm. genre for sure is this sort of memoir and right. sort of personal nonfiction. Um, you're seeing a lot of great works come up um, on, in that sort of realm. Uh, and also what I think is especially exciting is a lot of Indigenous authors are really taking their place in different genres, different literary genres, mm. uh, different fiction genres, I mean. You know, like Moon of the Crested Snow could, could be classified as either a thriller, but it's definitely post-apocalyptic, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not the first, you know. There's also Sheree Dimaline's The Marrow Thieves and Harold Johnson's Corvus and Louise Erdrich's uh, Future Home of the Living God. Mm-hmm. So we're seeing this, I guess, blossoming canon in each genre of Indigenous artists taking their rightful place as storytellers and not just writing any sort of stereotypical narrative that I think um, the mainstream gatekeepers would have pigeonholed them into maybe five years ago as recently, right? But 10, 20 years ago for sure. So it's definitely an exciting time and, and there are just too many people to list who are doing great things at this moment, eh? So it's, very um, it's a community that I think is really supportive too for the most part and I'm really eager to see who comes up to create the next beautiful works in mm. terms of Indigenous storytelling and books. So I, I have to ask you this uh, for Moon of the Crusted Snow. Um, when you when you were writing that, how what do you do you see the words or do you see do you create images? How do the stories and characters develop for you? Oh, good question. They all develop in my head before I start writing it down. So I think that maybe because I come from an oral storytelling background mm-hmm. and that. Mm-hmm. My first experience with stories was being told them from elders and other family members. So right. with Moon of the Crested Snow, I committed the whole thing. Well, not not the whole thing, but I guess the, the general arc of the narrative and the major plot points to memory, right? Like I knew right. in my head how the story was beginning, how the tension was going to rise, what the climax was going to be and how it was going to end. Um, I worked on that in my head for a couple of years before I actually sat down to write it. So yeah, I had all the imagery up there and it was just a matter of finding an effective and an efficient way to write it into prose, you know? Um, So I think the actual writing was the shortest part of the whole process, quite (laughs) honestly. Um, But at the same time, you know, throughout that dreaming up phase, 
I'll make notes and sure. I'll chart like uh, that narrative arc and point form and that kind of thing. But actual writing things out is the last thing I do. So if it's the easiest sort of thing, that's interesting. Uh, does that mean that the editing process is easier as well, you think? Maybe. Um, with Moon of the Crested Snow, I had just a phenomenal editor named Susan Renouf at ECW Press, who um, I think really helped further streamline the story itself and really helped with the pace and helped develop my voice as as an author, which I think is still developing, you know, and mm. Moon of the Crested Snow is only my third work of fiction. Right. And I think my writing is going to change over the next few books. So... Um, yeah, like, the, the, so we worked very well together, you know, she wanted the best for the story and I agreed with pretty much all the changes that she wanted to make. And, mm. and it was mostly like, um, mostly technical things that she suggested, like she didn't want to change anything about the story, about the plot or the characters mm. or anything like that. Mm. Uh, if anything, she wanted to draw a little more out of those elements, but you know, the story from start to finish wasn't really changed at all. It was just uh, the language was changed a little bit and, and the flow, um, right. again, was a little more streamlined. So, right. yeah, I, I would say that was a pretty efficient process. Uh, so you use the word Im- imagery, that you had the imagery all in your mind. Uh, we're getting close to the end of our, our interview, just to let you know. I know you have to run as well. Uh, but uh, when you said imagery, that's where I was kind of going with my question. I was kind of leading you because I thought, you know, w- when I read this book and the way it's written, it- it's very visual to me. And I thought this would really nicely translate to, you know, another medium like film. <laughs> mm. Yeah, hopefully, you know. Um <laughs> There is interest and there is, uh, there will hopefully be some developments there. I, I can't say for sure at this mm. point what that's mm-hmm. going to be, but all I guess I can say is uh, stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs> right. Now, as you mentioned, this is your, your third book, first one being Legacy and Midnight uh, Sweat Lodge. Um, now, you know, isolation uh, is a big thing. We talked about this in, in, in this uh, uh, book. And, um, you know, it, it's even the title, Moon of the Crested Snow, when I hear that, I hear the crunch of that really hard uh, crusted snow under your under your, your shoe when you're stepping on it. And even the, some of the other descriptions that you describe, you know, the, the rocks hitting the truck. And, and I, I just think that that's the kind of stuff you can hear when you're in a community or out on the dirt road, when you have no other distraction, you can't hear anything else. Uh, it's just the, the immediate surroundings that you get. And and I thought, yeah, that, that I really got that sense of, of not, not just, it's not just isolation, it's um, closeness or... Yeah, that's cool. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you picked up on that. I think, you know, being, uh, I guess, on the land or even in a rural setting provides you that, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the opportunity to focus on some of the smaller things and some of the more, I guess, more pronounced things in your immediate environment. And you're not necessarily just focused on, you know, getting from home to work and you know, everything else attached to those two particular settings. You know, when you're out on the land, it's it's about making connections with even just those little tiny rocks around you, you know, mm-hmm. and that's what I've always appreciated about being from, uh, being from the land and having grown up in the reserve is mm-hmm. just that um, ability to, you know, be in the world and yeah. appreciate it and, and take as much in as possible, you know, so... 
Um, that's something I haven't really thought too much about lately, so I'm glad you picked up on that. I appreciate that. You know what? It's being present in the moment. Yeah. You know, you know what yeah, I mean? We talk, yeah, yeah, we talk a lot about mindfulness nowadays, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I think uh, a lot of Indigenous cultures have that, I guess, built in, you know? It's about yeah. appreciating everything around you and being thankful yeah. and yeah. sort of taking a step back from your immediate focus of, I guess, the day-to-day grind of capitalism, you know? So, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. Well, it's been a pleasure uh, having you on the show and, and speaking with you. We really appreciate you taking the time to do so. And all the best in the future with everything else that's coming your way, and congratulations. Okay, miigwech again. Thank you. All right, take care. And uh, that is Wabgishik Rice. He is an author and journalist, originally from Wachach Singh First Nation. He's our guest on the second half of Moment of Truth. It's been a pleasure to have him. We wish him all the best in his future endeavors. Uh, you can pick up a copy of Moon of the Crusted Snow, his latest book. Uh, you can look for it online. He's got a couple of others out there as well, Legacy and Midnight Sweat Lodge. So uh, pick that up. It's being highly recommended, and I highly recommend it as well. So... Uh, Hope you pick that up and enjoy it. That's our show for today. We also want to thank you for listening and participating with Element FM and Moment of Truth. We'll catch you next time right here on Element FM and Moment of Truth. Until then, we'll see ya. I also want to say nyawa miigwech wanishi and thank you to everyone who helps put Moment of Truth together. They include in Ottawa, Jill Kennedy and Caroline O'Neill. In Toronto, Andrew Johnson, Luca Capone, Kathy Zaboken, Andrew St. Germain. Nyawa miigwech and thanks for listening.